Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. So I'm chatting with Dr. Sema Naruz. He's the President of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. And we're talking about the impact of managed care on his practice. We did do this recording back in June, so please take that into account with regard to our discussion about COVID. Now, we do get a little bit technical in this podcast, and we talk about three conditions. We talk about foot drop, which is weakness in your leg, which means that you have trouble picking up your foot and placing it down. And it can often, but not always, come from a spinal problem. We also talk about post-herpetic neuralgia, which is a painful condition that develops after you develop shingles. So shingles arises because you've been infected in the past with chickenpox and the chickenpox virus lays dormant in your body and then can manifest itself as shingles, which can be quite a painful condition. And that can cause a chronic pain condition called post-hepatic neuralgia. Bear in mind that this could all be avoided because chickenpox is a vaccine preventable disease. The other thing we talk about is radiofrequency ablation which Dr. Nehru's describes very well, and so he should, because this is a very common procedure that is performed on people who have chronic back pain. And of course, the right underlying condition that is the cause for their back pain. Okay, I hope I've explained those conditions as the main focus of this podcast is to discuss managed care and the impact it's having in America, because there is a very distinct possibility that this is how we're going to end up in Australia. If you are concerned about this, then do listen in and I'll give you some more links at the end of the episode. Okay, let's get into it. You've taken up presidency mid-pandemic, so how is that going for you? We had two or three peaks already, but most of the states are opening or opened already. But I heard that Australia did not get hit hard. Well, it's an interesting challenge now because we are very unvaccinated. And so we're having trouble opening our borders and opening up movement between our different states. So we've kind of backed ourselves into a a little corner there. It looks like the strategy with the US is that you're going to vaccinate your way out of this pandemic. This is the goal. And the goal is even 70 or 80 percent. But I think this is unreachable. That's why now we're seeing a shift and the infection are in the teenager. So now they're extending the vaccination for even kids now. I think vaccination is very important. It's very tough to convince everyone for whatever reason, but the more we can get the most of the population vaccinated, the more we can get out of this pandemic quickly. And is your practice mainly in pain medicine? I do mainly chronic pain and actually headache medicine. Wow. So you you trained as an anaesthetist for anesthesiologist first, then went into pain medicine. And then and neurology headache. Um, yeah, board certified in neurology headache. And uh, I think this is my passion. Lovely. So we have an issue here emerging in Australia, which is why I wanted to chat with you, because we have Cigna, which you'd probably be familiar with. And they have put in a proposal to start operating in Australia in conjunction with one of our health insurance companies. And the proposal looks very much like managed care. They talk about value-based contracting, collecting data, incentive payments, fee for performance measures. And so we're trying to get a better understanding of how this impacts 
you as a practitioner or your members speaking as the president, but also the impact on patients. What are some of the things that they will face as challenges in all of this? This is a very interesting topic. I can share with you some input about anesthesia in general. Insurance companies can be very tricky. And we as physicians, we don't teach how to handle it from pre-authorization, get it approved, and more importantly, to get paid for this service. So we count on our staff. We have to have a solid infrastructure, two or three dedicated staff just to take care of pre-authorizations and follow up on them. I will share with you what we struggle on a daily basis with some examples so your members will understand what are the situations that they might encounter in the near future. But in general, they need pre-authorization which means that if you had a history and physical with a patient and you decided based on your years of education and training and practice that this particular patient needs this particular procedure based on clinical presentation, imaging, and the available evidence-based medicine, you still need to get pre-authorization. This is an extra work. This is really a big load for your staff. And uh, does it delay care? For sure. The issue is, it's not even straightforward. They always say, oh, you are missing X, Y, and Z in your documentation. And always blame it on you as a practitioner. So they send the denial letter to the patient. And they are not saying that we're not denying this. They said, oh, because your physician did not document the trial. So you are the one to be blamed. So the patient is angry, is upset because he or she feels that You did not document properly or you don't know what you're doing. You did not ask for the correct procedure or you did not use the correct CP. So there is really lots of repercussions. It's not like, oh, they don't want this. Okay, I will do it that way or resubmit. So there is a big hassle here. So I'll give you examples. Like, first of all, I'm chronic pain. So you had a patient with herniated death, acute herniated death. True, it can resolve on its own on time by physical therapy, natural history, whatever. But once you start to have weakness, you you need to intervene. You need to get an MRI. So usually ask for an MRI. And usually it's automatic response that will come to you deny because the patient just has the pain like two or three weeks ago. Patient did not go for six weeks of physical therapy. Patient did not finish three months course of over-the-counter analgesics or NSAIDs. If you read the note, you will see that the patient has foot drop. There is semi-urgency here. You need an MRI to intervene, to see if you refer to a surgeon or to manage appropriately. But to just contain the cost, they have strict regulation that the reviewers are going through this checklist. Wow. I just want to come back to the foot drop because for people who don't know the significance of foot drop, that's that's very significant. You want to start intervening on that. You know, this is someone who potentially needs surgery, a microdiscectomy, a laminectomy, and yet the longer you leave it, the worse the outcome. Absolutely, yes. But a couple of years ago, when things start to be more and more tough and strict, we used to order them urgent and we just send the patient to the MRI because we know for sure that we'll be reimbursed for this. Hospitals don't want to do this anymore unless you have to call a favor for you. But radiologists, the hospital, they want to make sure that they will be reimbursed for this service because you take risk and you're even not getting reimbursed. So you cannot do this anymore. We used to do it because we know for sure patient has foot drop. So they will tell you, you cannot have an MRI. 
until the patient finishes six weeks of physical therapy. Great. You order physical therapy. They will decline the physical therapy. Why? The patient had physical therapy six months ago, and they have only 20 sessions a year. They are done with their sessions. Yeah, but you are not approving the MRI unless the patient has physical therapy within the past six months. And now you do not want to approve the physical therapy because the patient exhausted their allowed sessions of physical therapy. So it's going in circles. This is the idea. I think the philosophy is to get you exhausted and drained and turn you off. So it's like, okay, whatever you want. But we have duty. We have to be advocate to our patients. So it's draining when every time you pick up the phone and you schedule a peer-to-peer review and you wait for someone. And I hate to say this, whoever on the other end of the phone call, they don't know. So you have to speak in a language so they understand the severity of the disease, uh, why you need this. Even they intervene in every single aspect. Even if they approve MRI, then we'll do it, but without contrast. It's a struggle. It's really a struggle. And honestly, if you survey people here in the U.S., I will say this is one of the major reasons for burnout, loss of interest, leaving the practice and go to business or whatever. Yes, I can understand. And again, those are not like unique stories. I'm, I'm saying that the stuff that we see every day, but those are the, the one that honestly, I have few of them every week. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever had a patient who did develop foot drop? You wanted a semi-urgent MRI. It's been refused. And say that patient just had such a delay in the treatment that they had a very poor outcome? Fortunately, no, because quite a few times we had to do the MRI and then we had to eat the cost because we did not get pre-authorization. There is an appeal process, but believe it or not, it can take up to two years to get reimbursed for a procedure that you did two years ago. Sometimes we are lucky if we are persistent. Again, it needs lots of infrastructure, but sometimes you you just eat the cost. You you do what's the best for the patient, but it burns your bridges with your radiologist because next time if you tell him, you know, do this for me, I'm sure we'll get it approved. He or she might not listen to you, but had a bad outcome because I had to delay. No, I have a bad outcome because of a different problem, network coverage. I had a patient like this, and the, the surgeon that we are working with or the surgeon that's working in this ER, he's out of network, so it won't be covered. So the insurance said, no, you need to see someone else in a different hospital, in a different city. So this was a delay of care, and the weakness unfortunately persisted because the surgery was not quick enough. Oh, geez, that's a terrible outcome. So this was a patient who had weakness and they needed surgery it's always, yeah, if the patient has persistent weakness for a while prior to the discectomy or whatever the decompression is, the, the chances to recover after the definitive surgery is lower it will, or will take longer, exhaustive physical therapy and rehab to go back to baseline. And for you, I think this is important from the anesthesia perspective because, and it happens a lot here in the state, the patient goes to a surgeon. So they look up the surgeon in their network they go for the surgeon, but they forget that the anesthesiologist might not be in the network or even worse, the ICU staff. So you did the surgeon, surgery is in your network, but there is a team. It's a team and the anesthesia personnel might be under different contract, the ICU staff under different contract. So you, you think that you did your homework as a patient. I'm going to the surgeon in my network. The procedure is pre-authorized. But then you will be getting a surprise 
statement from your anesthesiologist, ICU is even much worse. So it's this network is can be extremely tricky. And as a practitioner in my area, I need to be fully aware who are my support team. I mean, you cannot work alone. We need a spine surgeon. We need a neurologist. Uh, you need a radiologist. You need a physical therapist. So sometimes the patient has to see a pain physician in one town, the surgeon in another town, physical therapy in another town. Uh, I mean, they are all like 15, 20 miles away, but still just to make sure that you stay in the, in the network. And you learn it the hard way because they did it before and they found that it's it's driven by money. It's not really, I hate to say that the patient's interest or interests are not on the top of their list. So in this particular case, you have to call them, you have to document. Not every insurance they will accept peer-to-peer by phone. You have to write an appeal letter and wait for two days. So so you have to have like a pre-written appeal letter for almost every procedure that you do. So you can hand it to your staff so they can use it so they don't have to call you every day. I always say you have to play the game. I know people, they don't like this, but if, if I'm not in the position to change the whole system, then I have to work within the system that's available for me. So you just advocate for your patients train your front staff, your infrastructure staff. We have two, actually, I'm like only a small hospital-based practice, but we have two or three staff just for pre-authorization, another two for documentation and reviewing everything and other than the collectibles. I wanted to ask, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I saw a list, I think it was eight, no, they... um. I saw a list of, of blocks that they weren't going to fund because they deemed that there was not enough evidence for them. Yes. And some of those blocks, when we looked at them in Australia, they're quite commonly performed. Does that impact your practice? Yes, because you won't get reimbursed for those procedures. You still can do it. Uh, you help the patient, you take the risk, accept the risk for if complication happened, but you're not going to get reimbursed. And it's not this particular insurance. It's across the board. First of all, we have to admit, if we're going to stick to we need a strong level of evidence for every single procedure, then this is the weapon they are using. They are weaponizing our regulations, our, I mean, practice guidelines or recommendations. Whenever we say there is a level C, it's for them, it's automatic denial. Uh, but not everything will have level A or level B. In medicine in general, not even not in regional seizure pain. And we forget something very important, personalized care or patient-centered care. Every patient is a different story. So I have this case. Actually, I have to call high up, not this insurance company, a different one. Actually, the patient has shingles, shingles infection, post-herpetic neuralgia affecting the back of the head in the distribution of the C2 nerve root or occipital. So we ordered occipital nerve block because we don't want to do a high cervical epidural uh, for something like this. So Accept a nerve block for post-therapeutic neurology, denied. And the denial letter, there is no enough evidence to support accept a nerve block for chronic migraine headache. Okay, but the patient does not have migraine headache, post-therapeutic neurology. No, actually, we delete the CPT code for accept a nerve block. So we do not approve accept a nerve block. So actually, I have to call, and I took it personal. Shingles pain is a nightmare. Shingles pain is one of the worst, one of the really most significant pain and the incidence of having a, a bad mishap is really, really very dismal. And I presume the results are really good too. Yes. So I had to go, no, we cannot, we don't have a CPT. It's not in our list. This is done. No oxygen nerve block. I said, you know what? Yeah. 
maybe for headache in your policy, which even I don't agree with, but this is a different diagnosis. And then I had to talk to someone. I said, you know, do you approve peripheral nerve block for post-herpetic neuralgia? Sure, yes. Okay, this occipital nerve block is a peripheral nerve block for post-herpetic neuralgia in the head. What's the difference? So once you reach to a level that he's a physician, he's in charge to change their policy, it was accepted. It took a number of letters to get this approved, this occipital nerve block approved for this patient with the post-herpetic neuralgia. How long would that have taken? Or how long would this patient have been in pain for? No, actually, this one took forever because it was rejected till the point, I think they give you like two appeals and then it's like done, like three steps at that set. But we took it for the next step. We had to, to go up to the executive suite. And I mean, this was very, very obvious that someone is not reading the notes. Someone is following a very strict policy that has no soul. There is no personalized care. There is no patient-centered care. There is no, there, there is no mercy, if I want to say. But honestly, you cannot do this for every single patient. You cannot do this for every single patient. And, and you think, it's done and that the policy will be changed for everyone. The same story a year later. And no, the policy is a policy. We need to update the policy. We just updated it three years. Usually we don't update them until five years. Oh, goodness. In regional anesthesia, most of these new locks, you do it for free. I will tell you another example. Chronic pain now in the back. Radiofrequency ablation, which is, I mean, for whoever doesn't know it, like burning small peripheral nerves in the back that innervate the facet joint. Very well documented in the lecture. It's very helpful. They could not reject paying it. So they came up with this very fancy policy. You cannot do more than two levels. So the patient has osteoarthritis or spondylosis in three or four levels. You cannot do only more than two levels. So you have to do two levels. And they are diagnostic. And they want you to have more than 80% relief of pain. So if the patient has three levels of pain and you did only two levels, even if the two levels were 100% effective, the total would be less than 80%. So now they will guarantee that you cannot proceed for RFA because the diagnostic block did not work. So instead of telling you, do not do RFA, which they try, and our society in conjunction with other pain societies, we send the letter with the evidence we, we wrote even international consensus guidelines. It was very clear that RFA works for the needed indication in the correct patient in the correct hands. So to go around this, to prevent you from doing RFA, they have to make the diagnostic block non-function. How they make it, they limit you by two. Wow. So they set you up to fail. Yeah. So you cannot tell the patient, no, no, I'm talking about just those two inches of back pain above your hip bone. Don't pay attention to the pain above it. No, back pain is back pain. So you had, you had a patient who had foot drop, who had a delay in their surgery because it took them a while to get to, into a surgeon because of the network issue and didn't have as good an outcome as if they could have had their surgery sooner with a surgeon who was out of network. You've had patients with post-hepatic neuralgia who've been refused for their occipital nerve blocks who then had to put up with that pain for a longer period of time until all the paperwork got sorted. And you've also had patients who've got lumbar back pain who really can't go through this process of getting the appropriate treatment. They can only get a diagnostic intervention and it's set up to fail. 
And on top of all that daily frustration, any other examples that you can think of? This is already too many, isn't it? Everyone is talking about multimodal approach for chronic pain, utilizing conservative treatment before putting the patient on opioids or offering interventions with potential complications. But on the other hand, they will say, you know, the strongest level is for biofeedback, physical therapy, acupuncture, and none of those are approved by, by most of the insurance. So they want you to exhaust all those conservative options before offering stronger pain medication or interventions. But on the other hand, they are tying your hands because they know that the patient cannot exhaust their options because they have to pay cash. Physical therapy is limited by X numbers. Acupuncture, most of the insurance, they won't approve it. The same with chiropractic. So most of the patients, they will pay cash and not everyone can afford this. So this is what hurts. It feels that there's disconnect between whoever is writing the policies and the clinical aspect. It sets the bar too high when it's asking the patient to have a full course of conservative treatment that they've got to pay for before they can get other treatment that the insurance company will pay for. Absolutely. This is the reality that we're facing here. Everyone needs to be aware of the, the drawbacks of different insurances or managed care but we should be aware of the negatives and have a plan ahead for you, especially it's time to have a plan ahead to avoid those obstacles. And it's always better to negotiate ahead because once you started a program, you're stuck. Exactly. Although there is lots of out-of-pocket now, you cannot survive healthcare here without insurance. Uh, there are better insurance than others, yes. We've got free universal healthcare in Australia, so we're lucky in that way. Yeah. Now they're talking about like transparency. So you have to do your homework before. So you are not like, you don't have unlimited options. No, you still have limited options, but but you can choose. If you have a well-informed information, because it's not easy to find the pros and cons for each one. I mean, it's a marketing, everyone promoting. No one will tell you, but this is my disadvantage. I mean, for me, the stuff to read, it's not easy to understand. So for the average person, I say it's very difficult. It's not easy. Oh, my goodness. Well, look, we are trying our best at the moment to warn doctors and warn patients about what might be coming our way if managed care does come to Australia. So this has been very enlightening. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I just wish our Australian colleagues the best of luck. You guys have a great healthcare system, a great education. And uh, just the best of luck. Thank you, Dr. Naruz. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having It was a pleasure being on your uh, platform. Thank you. Let's reiterate what Dr. Naruz said. We in Australia have a great healthcare system. On various international studies, it rates very well. There's always room for improvement, but managed care is definitely not a step in that direction. If you are concerned, then perhaps one of the first things you could do is share this podcast with someone that you know. Maybe it's someone who works in healthcare or has a chronic pain condition who might be affected by some of these changes if they were to come to Australia. The other thing that you could do is go to the Send the Eagle Home website. I'll put a link in the show notes. There you'll find a lot of resources, things you can watch, things you can read, as well as the link to find your federal member so that you can write to them and let them know that you're concerned. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, then I'd love to hear from you. Email via asa at asa.org.au is the best way to get hold of me. All right, I hope you're staying well, hope you're staying safe, and as always, take care out there. 
This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>